0: We're reading Psalm 136 this morning, and uh, I'd like to do this as a responsive reading. So there's a, there's a consistent refrain throughout the psalm, His faithful love endures forever. So that's your part, and I will read the other bits that come before that. Um, so let's read this together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. His love he alone does great wonders. His love he made the heavens skillfully. His love he spread the land on the waters. His love he made the great lights. the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and outstretched arm. He divided the Red Sea. And led Israel through, but hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. He He led his people in the wilderness. He He struck down great kings. He He slaughtered famous kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to Israel, his servant. He remembered us in our humiliation and rescued us from our foes. He gives food to every creature, Give thanks to the God of heaven, and that's quite uh, similar to how this psalm would have been read originally, with this kind of refrain that the congregation says. and And we're going to be exploring this together now. One of the things that um, was a strong emphasis in the church that I uh, that after we moved from South Africa, the church that I uh, that I went into, they were very um, critical of. Repetitive modern worship songs. And there was this idea that, uh, Hillsong and Planet Shakers and your Bethel musics and so on, they were taking a shortcut by emotionally manipulating people who, who sing the songs. And, and this was bad. You know, we, we shouldn't use music to infect people with false emotions. We shouldn't use repetition to move people. If you wanted someone to take a step spiritually, it had to go through the mind through the intellect first and not through the emotions. Love for God would follow after you've intellectually convinced someone of something. And so the message was essentially that God wouldn't use something like repetitive music to move the heart. And this week, this uh, little joke popped up in the um, church's uh, 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 music chat, which I like. It's a good joke. But this was the sentiment And as I was thinking of this, uh, I was reminded of the story of young Billy. You know, Billy was driving in the car with his grandpa one day and they were listening to Light FM. And one of these repetitive worship songs came on and Billy said to his grandpa, why does this song keep saying the same thing over and over and over? And his grandpa sort of chuckled and he said to him, well, that's just the style of modern worship music. And so Billy asked his grandpa again, isn't God bored? of of hearing the same things over and over. And I mean, maybe we've been too polite to ask the same question, but it is worth reflecting on, particularly when we have a psalm like 136, which is very repetitive. And I don't think any of us really enjoy saying, is faithful love endures forever, sort of, um, you know, ad infinitum. So today I want us to think about this question biblically for a moment. It's easy for us to, you know, to make jokes like this, uh, to take, um, to take that on board, but we actually need to think about what the Bible says about this, not just what the world says. So, uh, so we're going to do that now. Before we jump in, there are a couple of things that we really need to appreciate in order to understand what this psalm is saying. Now, the word for faithful love is the Hebrew word uh, chesed. Um, which is not a word that we can directly translate into English. We don't have the same concept. Uh, We just have one word for love. Now, if you read the different English translations, and maybe you have a different one with you, they will do different things. Like the NIV says, his love endures forever. The ESV renders this as his steadfast love uh, endures forever. We have his faithful love endures forever. Now, chesed love is God's covenant love. It's a kind of love that always does the right thing um, and it is mixed in with it is this concept of grace, that the person who displays this kind of love, this faithful, steadfast love, will overlook the wrongs of the other person and still do the right thing regardless. It is chesed love that will continue to do the right thing even when the other person is doing the wrong thing and breaking the covenant. The Lexham Analytical Lexicon of the Hebrew Bible, which I sometimes read, uh, says this. Chesed is defined as loyalty, joint obligation, faithfulness, goodness, graciousness, godly action. It's an unfailing kind of love, a kind of goodness or kindness, and it is often used of God's love that is related to his faithfulness to his covenant people. So when the psalm here says his chesed love endures forever, what he's saying is that his his decision to do good and right and to show kindness and love in light of the covenant endures forever. So that's what that phrase means. So that's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing is that um, God's loving kindness and faithful love is expressed in relation to his covenant. And so we need to understand what his covenant means. Is what he what what the psalmist means when he says his covenant love endures forever. So very briefly, there are a, quite a number of different covenants in the Bible. A covenant is a little bit like a contract. It's the one person saying, I'm going to do this if you do that sort of stuff. Now God's covenants are often one-sided, but in with Israel they are two-sided. So God makes promises that he would uh so the first covenant that God made was with Adam and Eve right after the fall. And so just after sin came into the world, God promises that one day he would um he would send someone who would come and undo the curse of sin. And that's a one-sided covenant promise. Another of the major covenants in the Bible is the covenant God makes with Abraham, that he would make him into a great nation, that he would give him the promised land, that he would uh, give to him and his children this, this uh, land of Canaan as their possession, and that the whole world would be blessed through him. And it is probably to this covenant that this psalm refers. It's the covenant with Abraham that this uh, song actually talks about, and so um uh, when God is expressing his covenant love here, it is because of his promises that he has made. Okay, so with that groundwork done, let's actually look at what the psalm says. And the first thing we, need, we read in Psalm 30, 136 is that God's covenant love shows God's character. And so verse 1, 2, and 3, and the last one at the end, all talk about who God is. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is the God of gods, verse 2. He is the Lord of lords, verse 3. He is the God of heaven, verse 26. And all of these things are couched in this idea that God's covenant love uh, lasts forever. And so one of the questions I think you and I need to wrestle with is, uh, as we mature in Christ- as Christians, is who is God to us? Like, just who is God? What is his character actually like? What place... Does God hold in your life? Is he a kind of helpful add-on? You know, someone you can turn to when things are difficult? Someone who can help you out of a spot of trouble? What place does he really hold in your life? Because Psalm 136 teaches us that God is so much more than this uh, cosmic therapeutic help that we can turn to when things go wrong. He is in fact the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the God of heaven. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, God is good beyond all others. Indeed, He alone is good in the highest sense. He is the source of good, he is the good of all good, he is the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, the rewarder of good, and he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. Is it any wonder then that reflecting on this, the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So how do we actually go about doing this? How do we give thanks to God for who he is, for his goodness? I think living in a society like we do today, in the world that we do, which is so individualistic and, you know, you do you, look after number one and so on, I think this is one of the most difficult things for us to train ourselves in. And I want to throw out a challenge for you this week, and that is to start praying prayers of thankfulness. One of the things that I've had to grow in in my years as a Christian is to thank God in prayer. And and we talk about this often uh, you know, being thankful to God for he is good. But how much of our prayer life is actually spent giving thanks to God for who he is and for his goodness? I think if you're like me, at least a few years ago, our default position would be probably 0%, maybe 1 or 2. Maybe 2% of our prayer life is is devoted to thanking God for who he is. And so challenge number one today is that when we pray, when you pray, just measure how much of the time you spend in prayer is thanking God for his character, for who he is. Maybe you want to set aside some specific time to focus on God's goodness, on his godness, if you like. Because look at what the psalmist teaches us to do here. He's teaching us to tell God how good he is. Now that's an interesting concept, isn't it? The Bible is instructing us to tell God how good he is. It's not that scripture wants us to encourage God. It's not like that's necessary, that God needs our encouragement. But it is acknowledging who he is. He is the God of all gods. He is the Lord above all other lords. So giving thanks to the Lord involves us praising God for his supremacy over all other things. We might say something like, Lord, you are worth so much more than all the idols of today. Lord, to me you are greater than money, more important than fame. You draw me out of this desire to become an influencer on TikTok, out of a desire to just become a wealthy business owner. You draw me into a relationship as your child. Thank you, Lord. Something like that. When our prayers are starting to be characterized like the psalms uh, Psalms do here, I think it changes our hearts from hearts of desire to hearts of gratitude. And so the psalmist here starts by praising God for who he is, for his chesed love, his his uh, faithful covenant love that shows his character, his goodness, is where the psalm starts. But then his goodness Uh, stuff happens because of his goodness and the psalmist here gets a little bit more specific so he's praising God in the first three verses and the last one for who he is and now he moves in verse four to nine into what God has done so he says and I'm going to miss out the repetitive bit um because we don't like repetitive music uh he alone does great wonders. He made the heavens skillfully. He spread the land on the waters. He made the great lights. He set the sun to rule by day and the moon and stars to rule by night. He's almost quoting Genesis chapter 1 here, where God makes the world. And each time comes the refrain His faithful love endures forever. Now, friends, have you ever considered that God's love is shown to us in creation? God's covenantal love, his overwhelming love, his awesomeness is shown to us in creation. His power is shown to us in creation. His creativity is shown to us in creation. That should make sense. His art and his wisdom, you know, the psalmist says he makes the heavens skillfully. His, his artistry, his um, uh, craft skill, whatever you call that, is is shown to us in creation. His faithful, enduring love is already there when he makes the world, when he flung the stars into space, when he skillfully wove together the heavens, when he commanded the water, this far you will come and no further, when he made the sun and the moon and the stars right at the beginning of history, even there God's character aspect of faithful covenant love was evident. It is in love that God made the universe. Creation declares His majesty. I think we're just saying that. And it is for this reason that God calls every human being to account. Creation shouts, it doesn't whisper. That God exists, that he is here, that he is loving. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 tells us this clearly. Uh, Paul there says, Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made, and as a result, people are without excuse. What Paul is saying there is, If you want to know whether God exists or is real, just look out the window at creation. There is no one, actually, who can say, I didn't know God existed. There is no one who who can say, there is no proof of God's work. I did not know that God was real. No friends, the world, the creation, the beauty and the awe we so readily see in creation declare the glories of God. Now one of the best examples I have ever seen of this concept is in the first season of a show producer in Australia called Travel Guides. Now, in the show, various people go to various places around the world, and they um, they kind of film their reactions uh, when they go through various um, you know activities you can do in this place that they're going on holiday. And so, and so they've got to give a, a review at the end of each little trip. And in this particular episode, they go to Mount Islo in New Zealand and they take a helicopter ride to the base of a glacier. And I actually have the clip. I used this about four years ago. But it is so good at capturing exactly this picture of what it means that creation shouts God's glory. So I want to show this to you. It's three minutes long, so I'm going to just beg your indulgence. But um, uh, Sandra, if you For 18,000 years, the ice at the leading edge of this glacier has worked its way down Mount Earnslaw. In summer, the melting ice forms hundreds of spectacular waterfalls. I just got so overwhelmed, I actually, yeah, I got a bit teary, I was beside myself. Like going to another planet, and you were just dropped into the middle of it to experience it. This valley featured as a location in the Hobbit movies, but here anyone is dwarfed by the kilometre high cliffs. Is this one of the most surreal things you've ever seen? Oh my god. Have you ever seen anything like that? You know when it's so emotional, like it's just Mother Nature at her it's absolute best. best. Group yeah, this mm. is the best experience ever. I found it really spiritual actually. Hallelujah! <laughs> I think this is pretty close to heaven, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Divine it is, I think. It's just beautiful. I feel like something I never feel in my life. Something very, very, very nice. We prayed there, and I loved it. It's a fully like spiritual moment, man. Like just Brilliant. the essence and the energy in this valley alone. I'm feeling such an amazing connection to just the earth right now. Frequency of the earth literally touched my soul, and it became part of me. And it was just that piece of the, buzz, the puzzle that came together within my, my seeming connection to the, the land of New Zealand. Can we do a selfie? Oh, that looks pretty good. Oh, that looks great. That looks great. Please great. need to duck a bit. Don't think. Can you stand behind it? As a family, we're not nature lovers but I want to be now. Mm. I mean that was incredible. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, that's yeah, good. That's good. Mm. At 900 bucks a head, this 75-minute brush with the glory of God doesn't come cheap. $900 experience worth every cent. Getting married, the birth of Jonathan and Victoria and experiencing that was one of the best things in my life. This is probably the most exciting day in my whole life. The ride in the chopper and standing in front of a glacier was a near spiritual experience. I suppose the real spiritual experience would come when the credit card bill comes in. You got $1,800. That'd be a spiritual experience, I'm sure. I think that captures both the best and the worst of us, right? so don't stone me, a little few oh my gods and a bit of Allah worship this morning, but that's not what we're here for. Um, is it any wonder, my friends, that one of Satan's key strategies that he uses with us today is that for us to be distracted, to fail to pay attention at what God has made in the world out there where we look down at our phones and computers and books and whatever else and fail to see the glory of God that surrounds us all over. Where even an atheist can look at that and see, that's a spiritual experience. That's one of the best experiences of my life. It's up there with my marriage and my children. And so the psalmist draws us back and says, no, if you want to know if God's real, look at creation, see the glory of God revealed in it and thank him for that. Because his faithful covenant love is available for us to see even in creation. He shows us his character in creation. The most important thing that the psalmist points us to is not creation, it's not even God's character, but his salvation. His chesed love, his covenant love leads us to salvation. Uh, Verses 10 to 24 is all about God's saving power. Now we have to understand that uh, that this psalm was sung during the Passover feast. So what would happen is that uh, this feast would be celebrated in Israel every year to remind people, uh, his people, of how God had saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And what happened during the Passover is that one, uh, you know, at the end of the ten plagues is that God um, used these plagues to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And so the firstborn of of everyone in uh, Egypt's um, their firstborn son, would die. But to get out of this, this plague that God would send, a sacrificial lamb had to be offered. Then the blood of this lamb uh, was supposed to be perfect and it had to be smeared over the doors um, of the houses of the Israelites. And there was this message that if there is no blood, then there is, uh, if there's no sacrifice, then there will be death. And this became this perpetual feast that Israel was to celebrate every single year. And every year they would be reminded that God had saved them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and that He, um, and they remembered this through celebrating this Passover feast. And again, this repetition of God's salvation for Israel would happen year after year, and this psalm would remind them that this is because of His covenantal chesed love. And so these verses tell us the story of how God saves Israel out of Egypt. It tells us the story of how the Red Sea was parted and God let Israel go through how he had established them as a nation, how he walked with them as they wandered in the wilderness. Um, and he had made this promised to Abram to give him a land and a people and that he would bless the world. And, and in the Passover feast, in this song, they are celebrating that God has actually done that. He has fulfilled the promises that he had made right back to Abram. He it's, created a nation, he set them apart, he gave them this promised land for themselves because of his covenant love. And he kept them safe while they were wandering through the desert. And he handed over Canaan to them, yes, driving out the kings of Sihon and the king of Og uh, in Bashan. Um, the promises to Abram were fulfilled and the psalmist is praising God that he had fulfilled his promise. In every conceivable way for, for an Israelite, God had truly shown himself to be true to his faithful love, his enduring love. Yes, he is good. He is the king over all. He created the world and he saved his people out of Egypt and he fulfilled his covenant promises to Abraham and his faithful love indeed endures forever. But that feels incomplete to us because that's not who we are. What difference does the psalm actually make to us? We don't live in Israel. We are not part of the people that God had saved out of Egypt. We didn't march through the Red Sea. We're not living in Canaan. And we don't celebrate the Passover feast to remind us that God saved us from the death of our firstborn son in Egypt. So what does this have to do with us? Well, the people to whom this psalm was written had only a small portion of God's work to reflect on. They only saw their salvation and redemption in relation to the covenant with Abraham. But the point is, friends, that there was a more distant covenant that God was fulfilling, the one to Adam and Eve. And he had uh, He was going to work for that redemption event even for us. You see, all of history, right from that first promise that God made to Adam and Eve, that one day one would come who would undo the curse of sin, uh, all throughout that, God's covenant love remains faithful even unto us today. And all of Scripture up to that point pointed towards the fact that one day Jesus would come you know, he who actually made the world, who, the one who saves us, not just out of Egypt, but out of our slavery to sin. The Israelites for whom this psalm was written could only look back on their deliverance from Egypt, but not us. You see, you and I have this glorious opportunity of looking back at how God saves us, not out of a physical Egypt, but out of a much deeper spiritual Egypt. We're saved out of our slavery, not to Pharaoh, but to our sinful nature. And because God has accomplished that in Jesus on the cross, we can say that our Lord is good and give thanks to him forever because his covenant love flows through even unto us. The proof of the pudding is not the covenant promises to Abraham setting up the nation of Israel, Israel, but the proof is that God stayed true to his covenant promise to Adam that he would send someone to undo the curse of sin, and in Jesus he did. Verses 10-15 to tell us that the people of Israel were set free from their bondage to slavery to Egypt through God's mighty act. But friends, from our position, we can see that there was a much more mighty act that God had in mind. The crucial event in all of redemption history, the death of Jesus on the cross. The exodus of Israel is but a dim picture of the redemption we get in Jesus. Where the spotless Lamb of God was shed for uh, for his people to set us free from our sins and God's mighty arm was revealed on the cross. And the people of Israel were guided for and provided all their years in the wilderness. They were brought into the land which God had promised to them. But we too are brought into a new inheritance. We are given eternal life. And we may spend some time in the wilderness searching for God or walking away from God, or being outside of God's family. But when we believe in him, we inherit the the gift uh, of eternal life, which was won for us on the cross. And so God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, not only to the faithful people of Israel, but also to the people of the new covenant, those uh, who trust in Jesus. And so truly we too can praise him with thanksgiving and say, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He has saved us.